0: Welcome to Invention, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Invention. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And today's episode is going to be on a very important invention in the history of human health and medicine – The condom. Now, obvious statement on the subject matter of today's episode. We're not going to be stigmatizing uh, uh, sex or birth control, but just wanted to give you a heads up uh, in case this came on in the car with the family or something, and uh, it's uh, and you want to avoid any awkwardness or whatever. But hey, if you want to keep listening, that's up to you. Yeah, as always, we're going to tackle
1: the subject matter with decorum here. Um, But uh, but yeah, it seemed like a great invention to tackle on the show because it's one as we'll discuss where the, the history. Is is interesting and at times not what we necessarily believe it to be in sort of like the the, the pop culture level of just you know vague understanding of uh, of uh, you know the historical truths regarding things, mm-hmm. uh, but then also we we you know obviously we thought well this would be kind of a, a potentially sexy episode of invention, <laughs> to you know to what ex- extent any episode of the invention podcast is sexy, um, I, I I do think it is an important note um, that that condoms despite their their clinical history. Still have a a sexy reality, uh, and that's one. Of, I mean, that's one of the key talking points on uh, you know, the material about condoms, uh, provided by uh, organizations such as Planned Parenthood.
0: Um, and we'll come back to that point in a bit. Yeah, that's a really good point, actually. I mean, w- despite their important, uh, you know, their medical significance, uh, I guess if you're trying to encourage widespread use of them to, you know, stop the spread of STIs and and discourage unwanted pregnancies you don't want to treat them as something that's like, you know, people associate with like a hospital or, you know, like you want people to think of them as something that's good to use in their recreational sexual activity. Yeah,
1: exactly. I mean, human sexuality is this mix of the biological, the things that we've evolved to do, and, you know, basically environmental conditioning. Mm -hmm. But then there's all of this cultural and societal conditioning as well. Yeah. And so – I I think the understanding of the condom uh, and the treatment of the condom and ultimately like communication about the condom and other, you know, contraceptive um, efforts as well, you know, have to like take those two movements into account.
0: Yeah. Making the condom sexy is a public health concern. Now, before we make it sexy, I guess we should just say, <laughs> what, what are the bare physical essentials? So, the modern condom is a physical barrier or sheath used during sex to reduce the probability of both unwanted pregnancy and the spread of sexually transmitted infections. Uh, and, of course, there are other methods and technologies that people have used and do use today to try to prevent both of these things. But the condom is important to talk about because it was one of, it has been one of the most widely used methods in history and around the world today – for both of these reasons. Absolutely, and again, one of the
1: other important things that we'll come back to
0: is that, like, the condom doesn't, uh, you know,
1: exist all on its own within the, um, uh, you know, the the the, uh, the the tool chest of contraceptive methods. Mm-hmm. It can be used, uh, can and should be used alongside these other methods as well, which we'll get to.
0: Yeah, and so there are two main versions of the condom that have been used throughout the years. Uh, that I, I think the terminology that we'll use is the internal condom and the external condom. The internal condom, sometimes called the female condom, the external condom, sometimes called the male condom; they essentially perform the same job, but they're worn differently, right? Uh, and I also want to go ahead and cite at the top of this episode probably my main source uh, of, of for the research today. It's an excellent paper on this subject by Jean-Jacques Ami and uh, Michel Thierry called "The Condom: A Turbulent History" from the European Journal of Contraception and Reprodu- Reproductive Healthcare from 2015. Uh, that was a really good resource, especially because it corrects some previously widely circulated. Related myths about the history of the condom.
1: That's right. There are a lot of just like basic lists of facts on the internet that... Uh that uh, you can, you know, they're not necessarily you know, dangerous facts or anything, mm-hmm. but but they're not necessarily correct. Uh, and there is a lot of stuff, too, that uh, we'll get into some examples of this, where there'll be a story about the origin of the condom. And it sounds, perhaps it sounds believable, but is there any evidence for it? Uh, uh, we'll discuss the details as we proceed here.
0: Yeah. So always on this show, when we talk about an invention, we like to ask the question of what came before this invention. And the answer here is, well, a lot of S. TI is an unwanted pregnancy. That's right. Uh,
1: you know, as, as humans, as Homo sapiens, we're continuous breeders rather than seasonal breeders. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's the same with, uh, with with our fellow ape species. Um, th- there's no breeding season for us. Um, however, various environmental factors do influence reproductive rates. So, in a way, you can argue that this can produce so-called hidden human breeding seasons. Hmm. Uh, elsewhere in the animal kingdom, we have seasonal breeders, of course. Um, There's a certain period of the year during which they will breed. And then there are also opportunistic breeders who will breed during favorable environmental conditions. But humans and other apes can mate year-round, and, and we've been this way for quite a while. You know, We've been biologically stable as a species for roughly 100,000 years in this regard— and sex among our ancient ancestors was still sex. Right, meaning
0: that, like, there was a lot of it going on, and there were a lot of things that uh, sometimes I feel like people can strangely think of as, like, recent additions to human life and culture, like Mm -hmm. STIs. Have you ever encountered this belief that it's like that's a thing that happened recently? There's,
1: yeah, in, in in a weird way, like, part of it in terms of, like, like just nostalgia for the past, like Mm -hmm. the recent past, like this, like I've encountered like a vague idea that uh, like during the 1960s, there were not STDs or something or that certain (laughs) STDs didn't exist. Um... And, uh, and granted, you know, there's a, you know, there's an ebb and flow to, uh, to, our, uh, to both, um, you know, uh, illnesses and diseases that are affecting us and more to the point, our awareness of said diseases, mm-hmm. um, you know, in addition to the, the actual spread of them. Uh, but, but yeah, uh, I've, I've seen like shades of this in terms of recent history. I don't know if I've encountered it in terms of ancient history, um, in part because it just seems obvious that there have always been uh, ailments of this
0: sort. Well, I just think I, I think it's part of a sort of like naive moralizing that that suggests like uh, you know sexual morality is not what it used to be and uh-huh. the past was better and therefore it's like this this fantasy that people weren't having sex in the past and part of that fantasy is that there wasn't uh, you know any of the negative consequences that can come from unprotected sex.
1: Ah, uh, so so kind of this um, like magical belief that. That sexually transmitted diseases are a product of not only um, uh, uh, immoral behavior, but a product of recent immoral behavior.
0: Yeah, the the, the false kind of moral degeneracy theory. You know, the, the present, kids are so bad these days.
1: Now, in terms of, of ancient people, though, according to, to David Buss, professor of psychology at the University of Texas, um, who wrote a book uh, titled The Evolution of Desire, Strategies of Human Mating, and he points out that we don't know for sure what sex was like for for you know ancient humans, but he points out you know something very much in line with our past stuff to blow your mind discussions on pain you know that that uh, that human sexuality is a mixture of the biological and the social uh, you know that there's a, a part of it is like what the body is doing and how we're we're reacting to the sensations, but then on top of that, as with m- most things that conscious humans engage in, there is that conscious understanding and how that changes uh, what is going on, Right. in addition, again, to culture and society and societal pressures.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Now, uh, as we've also discussed on Stuff to Blow Your Mind before... Uh, other organisms deal with reproduction and environmental demands. But humans alone would seem to exercise conscious understanding of and to an extent control of their reproductive anatomy. Uh, We're also the the most advanced tool users on the planet. So it should come as no surprise that we eventually turned our tool making and using skills to our own genitals in an attempt to manage our desires, the emotional aspects of sexuality, and the purely reproductive side of the act. Mm -hmm. And again, that's just the reproductive side of the equation because humans have also had to fight off an impressive parasite load right. uh, throughout their history, throughout their history and, and to deal
0: with the risks of diseases that spread through, among other things, sexual activity. So it is definitely not a fact that sexually transmitted infections are recent. This is something we've been dealing with as far back as is possible to imagine.
1: Right. And and it, and this is another thing that should go without saying, but I feel often needs to be stressed. Uh, sexually transmitted diseases are not merely a human thing. Like right. animals have sexually transmitted diseases as well. This is just part of being an organism. Yeah. Now, in terms of of ancient accounts of sexually transmitted diseases to back this sort of thing up. uh, There are a lot of examples. Uh, One of the papers that we were looking at uh, in this comes from uh, Franjo et al uh, titled History of Venereal Diseases from Antiquity to the Renaissance. And it points out that some of our oldest records include details of venereal disease. Mm -hmm. Quote, clay tablets from Mesopotamia, Egyptian papyri, along with mythology, paintings of erotic scenes, And the presence of prostitutes gives sufficient information to assume that some form of urethral and vaginal discharge, and also herpes genitalis, were present among people at that time, and that these diseases were considered a divine punishment. Oh, yeah. Uh, So So bringing the magic into it. Right. And this has always been the the history of of, of humans understanding their diseases and uh, trying to understand their diseases and, and laying on this level of society and culture. Uh, But on top of that, you you look back to the the writings and the work of uh, physicians throughout history and uh, the Greeks, the Chinese, the Arabic, uh, the Arabics, uh, Indian physicians as well all wrote about this sort of thing. And uh, I think syphilis alone is a great study in just how pervasive and influential a given venereal disease can be, uh, namely from at least the 15th century onward in Europe. Uh, We've talked about this on, again, our other podcast, Stuff to Blow Your Mind, in the past about just how widespread syphilis was, how difficult, if not impossible, to suppress and just, you know, to
0: the extent to which it... um, It affected society. It trickled down into culture, too. I mean, we've talked about everything. We even talked about the ways it may have influenced some vampire lore. Oh, yeah. Yeah, there's some strong theories for that uh, as well. But, of course,
1: without germ theory, there's only so much you can do to control STDs, right? And the efforts are going to range from herbal treatments, which you know may or may not have uh, have you know some degree of validity but uh, uh, to things that are just outright magic and superstition mm-hmm. as well as plenty of uh, classist and misogynistic treatments of venereal disease like even in the, the 20th century, as we learn more and more about how these diseases actually work, you still saw like a lot of like pretty awful propaganda, especially uh, or at least the main examples I've seen of it are from U.S. the U.S. military during the Second World War or the First World War that that play into the notion of monstrous females uh, being like the the sole domain of uh, sexually transmitted diseases.
0: Yeah, the, the idea that there are these immoral women out there that you don't want your you know your young uh, soldiers going off to war consorting with, and yeah. you warn them about almost treating them like they're vampires.
1: Right, and that. Also Ultimately, like placing all the blame on uh, on one gender, but throughout history, you know, there have also been these larger scale social movements, um, and, you know, the, the involving generally abstinence, and they can't stop the spread of uh, of these illnesses as well, because humans continue to engage in this sort of sexual behavior, this kind of sexual behavior they've evolved to engage in, and society society continues to provide outlets of accessibility, be it in war, uh, prostitution, etc. Plus, you also have plenty of venereal diseases that can be acquired via other other uh, methods, such as uh, the you know the public baths in history, you know, but before we really knew how to properly maintain them. Uh, and then I mean, also, like in ancient Rome and yeah, stuff. The, yeah. The, 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 that sort of thing and and then also in some times and places, this sort of these baths uh, provide a social outlet for sexuality as well. Uh, and then there are other cases where there are going to be other public health issues that make the spread of, uh, of these illnesses possible. Uh, and then also syphilis is a, an example of an STD that can be spread uh, uh, congenitally as well. So it can spread from a mother
0: uh, to an offspring. Hmm. Okay, so obviously sexually transmitted infections and unwanted pregnancies are are like huge issues that people have been trying to avoid going back millennia. Uh, So this is one – this is I guess where we should bring in the condom and maybe we should take a break and then when we come back from the break, we can explore the question of who invented the condom.
1: All right, we're back. We're discussing the invention of the condom. Uh, We've not yet gotten to the part in the episode where we'll make condoms sexy, (laughs) because we're going to be talking about animal bladders here for a little bit.
0: Well, uh, so we're asking the question, who invented the condom? We like to ask this about any invention we talk about, and this is one of those cases where we have no idea. Uh, There is no known inventor of the condom. So the use of animal tissues, such as bladders, like the swim bladders of fish or the bladder of goats or sheep, or intestines or cecum, like uh, the intestines of sheep often, Uh, these types of animal membranes and tissues have been used as protective barriers uh, during intercourse going way back into history. And we don't know for sure how far back. Our first direct physical evidence of the use of an animal membrane as as a condom is from the 17th century. But that's just, we have accounts going back farther than that. That's just the oldest example we have in the archaeological record. And we'll talk more about that later. Um, So it's an ongoing debate among historians and archaeologists whether anything like a modern condom was ever widely used in the ancient world and if it it was used to what extent. Uh, There were believed to be tons of different methods of sexual protection in the ancient world. Of course, there was a lot of use of amulets and magic spells and and potions and things like that. Uh, We mentioned a little bit about herbal remedies before. Uh, there was the use of, of pessaries sometimes, which would be like an object placed inside the vagina. In an 18th century BCE medical papyrus from ancient Egypt, there is the claim that, quote, crocodile dung mixed with honey and placed in the vagina of a woman prevents conception, which it, that sounds gross. That might have actually worked some of the time. I don't know. Maybe. I don't know that there have been any
1: modern studies into this particular. We're not advocating. No, no. <laughs>
0: Uh, but but yeah. What about condoms? What about a protective physical barrier in in the form of like a, a sheath? So I've come across some claims that uh, several types of protective sheaths in the form of both internal and external condoms were used by cultures like the ancient Egyptians, the Romans, the Chinese, uh, the people of New Guinea and the people of Japan and some others. Uh, Just one example of a claim like this I've come across. I was reading a part from a book called The Humble Little Condom, A History by Anya Collier. Uh, And she writes that before the 15th century in China, quote, Chinese condoms, yin chia, were alternately made from oiled silk, paper, and lamb intestines. And she doesn't specify how far back this is thought to have been used. Uh, She does say before the 15th century. But she writes that this condom only covered the top of the penis. And this is actually common with a lot of models throughout history. It's not common in uh, condoms today. But many models, especially some you'd see later in Europe, would only cover the glands. And uh, this was employed primarily with an understanding that it would prevent pregnancy. It was not aimed at preventing disease, according to Collier. But whether each of these individual claims about uh, condom use earlier than the 15th century are correct or not, it's clear that some use of physical barrier prophylaxis does go back into the fog of history. Uh, And there is no known inventor of the condom. Some of the people who have been given credit as the inventor are definitely not the inventor. Right.
1: And, of course, I think all of this makes sense because ejaculation would have been identified as a key event – uh, in, um, in in mating in pregnancy, mm-hmm. and therefore a physical barrier between the opening of the male urethra, if not the entire you know penis itself, and female genitals would seem a likely tactic that uh, that even you know ancient peoples would have realized.
0: Sure. Now I want to talk about mythology because there are some indications of something like a condom in, uh, in the mythology of the ancient world. Here's an example that came up in the paper by uh, by Ami and Thierry. Uh, something like a condom appears in a fascinating Greek myth as told by Antoninus Liberalis in the 2nd century CE in his work Metamorphoses. Now this is a prose work that's a lot like Ovid's poetry work, The, the Metamorphoses. Uh, it's a collection of texts. Tellings of Greek myths in which a god transforms a person into something else. And this particular story concerns Minos, the king of Crete, mm. and his wife, uh, Pasiphae. So in Liberalis' version of the story, Minos and Pasiphae are married, and they couldn't conceive a child because Minos was cursed. His semen was apparently full of snakes and scorpions, <sighs> which, which which would kill any woman that he had sex with okay so
1: on on that alone it sounds like you could look at that as either a possible um, you know magical um, version of uh, sexually transmitted disease sure like his his semen causes some sort of illness that eventually is is painful and could even you know bring death mm-hmm. um, or of course it could just be a, a treatment of infertility to say mm. that you know, again, kind of a mythological exaggeration.
0: Uh, Yeah, the method they're going to propose for fixing the problem in this story, I think, would not really correlate with it being modeled on a disease. It would correlate more with it just being like a magical convention in Mm -hmm. the story. But then again, even if this is inspired by some kind of real experience with the sexually transmitted infection or something, you can still see how it could uh, get sort of warped and acquire different mythical baggage over time. But Mm -hmm. anyway, so in the story, he's got this problem. His semen is full of snakes. It's got scorpions. It's got centipedes. It's a problem. So to get around the problem, King Minos is instructed to uh, put the bladder of a goat into another woman's vagina. I think this is – Prochris, and uh, and then to have sex with her. And after that, all the snakes and scorpions would be gone, so he and Pasiphi could safely have sex and conceive. And the implication is that the goat's bladder here serves as a protective barrier for this other woman, so that the serpents and the scorpions don't harm her. Now, this is strange, because you can almost, I, I don't know, could they not think about other ways around this problem? yeah. I mean, on
1: one level, it does sound like it could also be an example of, uh, you know, there being some sort of situation, some sort of sexual situation that needed to be addressed. And then the solution was, here, use this, um, this bladder. Uh, uh, in, in, in intercourse, as some sort of a barrier. Mm-hmm. And then perhaps you just have mythological explanations and story-making on top of that, almost as if like the, the, the people generating the stories don't understand and or don't care what the original reason was, mm-hmm. you know?
0: Or it could just be a mythical invention. Oh, but, yeah, certainly. but yeah, um But yeah, it's interesting to consider how it could have been inspired by some real practice. Like basically, if nothing else, it shows that
1: um, during the 2nd century CE, the idea of using a physical barrier during a, a sex act was at least in the zeitgeist.
0: Right. It's it's at least possible indication that there could have been some consciousness uh, about this in the culture. Uh, basically, this would be the form of an internal condom.
1: Now, I, I do want to say something real quick, though, about the um – uh, you know, about uh, the use of uh, of intestines and uh, and bladders right. and all of this. I feel like-
0: Seems gross to people today.
1: Yeah, it, 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 it can seem gross to us today. And I think a lot of that is because we are, so many of us anyway, are removed from the culture of butchery and can easily forget that animal bladders could be used for a number of different things. Uh, a dried animal bladder was essentially a balloon.
0: Well, and th- these membranes and tissues were used for all kinds of things in oh, the yeah. ancient world. I mean, this isn't the only use of a goat's bladder or a sheep intestine in the ancient world. They were uh, they were very versatile materials that were used in all kinds of consumer goods. And we'll come back to this in a bit. Okay. So another thing that uh, Ami and Thierry point out in their paper is that a lot of sources point to a 16th century Italian physician and anatomist named Gabriele Fallopio as, uh, as the person who published the earliest confirmed description of the condom. And uh, so Fallopio lived 1523 to 1562, and he was very influential in his discoveries about the human body and in overturning some of the misconceptions of physicians from antiquity, like... Galen. And through dissection of cadavers, Fallopio made a lot of important observations about about the human head, about the ears, and about the reproductive organs. Uh, He discovered the tubes that travel between the ovaries and the uterus, now known as Fallopian tubes. But uh, Ami and Thierry dispute this tendency to give Fallopio credit for the first published description of the condom, uh, and they dispute it in multiple ways. First of all, There is at least one known example much earlier than this of a published description of a condom. In the 10th century, the Persian physician Al-Akhawani published a treatise in which he advocated the use of an animal's gallbladder to cover the penis during sex, and this was understood to be for the purpose of preventing pregnancy. Uh, But Ami and Thierry also dispute that Fallopio ever described a condom as a barrier to be used during intercourse. Well, then what's this dispute about? Well, Fallopio did definitely write about a thing that covers the penis. Uh, According to Ami and Thierry, Fallopio wrote about a sheet of fabric that would be filled with a concoction of wine and wood shavings and bits of copper and antler ashes and mercury precipitate, whatever that is. And that by placing this sheet full of stuff over the glands, it would protect a man from contracting syphilis. However, what the authors here point out is that he actually doesn't recommend using this during intercourse. He recommends using it after intercourse has already taken place.
1: Oh, OK. Well, that – that makes a lot more sense given all the details of the uh, the ingredients that are placed within it.
0: Yeah. And so obviously that's not a condom. That's just more like a bizarre home remedy. Yeah. Uh, if Fallopio claimed that 1,100 men had used this method and none of them ever got syphilis, I'm suspicious of that claim.
1: Yeah. I mean especially given how um – Confusing syphilis, uh, you know, historically was to uh, to document. It was called right. the Great Imitator, for, for example, because it could it was so often misdiagnosed as other things, and then it, it can of course uh, go dormant for long periods of time and seem as if it is cured.
0: Yes. So e- even though this doesn't actually describe the use of a condom during intercourse, some historical writings do indicate that by the 17th century, animal membrane and linen condoms were being used in various places throughout Europe. So by the 17th century, there's definitely There are writings all over the place indicating people are using these things. They're definitely in fashion by then. And uh, another thing is the physical evidence here. So we mentioned a while back that the earliest surviving physical evidence of a condom uh, goes back to the 17th century. What is this physical evidence? Well, in the 1980s, archaeologists found sheep intestine condoms in an excavation of an English latrine pit from the 1640s. So it looks like they were used and then thrown in the latrine sometime between 1642 and 1646. The pit was actually covered in 1647, and we know that. Uh, and this was at a keep of Dudley Castle in West Midlands, England. Uh, so, if anybody's been there and has seen the the famous condom pit, <laughs> write in let us know.
1: Now, this brings us to the obvious question: condom. Like, where does the word itself come from?
0: This is a huge debate uh, all on its own.
1: Yeah, exactly. And and uh, and, and we should note that uh, you know th- th- there's certainly the myth out there of the British doctor condom or Colonel condom
0: or Colonel, yeah. <laughs> Who, uh, A reverend condom. Well,
1: I didn't run across reverend. But no, why I not, didn't either. Captain. I mean, as long as we're we're just clearly making him up. His holiness the pope condom. <laughs> well, he said, well, probably not that one. But he was said to have uh, lived in the 17th century. Um, uh, in England uh, under the reign of Charles II, mm-hmm. and it's pointed out by uh, Ami and Thierry uh, in Condoms of Turbulent History, there, there's seemingly no basis for this at all. Uh-huh. But there is a whole lot of conflicting stories on where the term condom comes from, uh, just be beyond uh, this story. Uh, so if, if it's not from a non-existent English name, and that's the thing, like condom's not even a, a an English name from that time period, then where did it come from? Well, they point to a few plausible theories. Uh, it could come uh, from the verb um, condere, uh, which has numerous meanings, including to protect to protect, or to sheathe, or the corresponding noun condus, uh, which means one who stores, that which preserves, or a receptacle. Or it also could uh, derive from the Italian word guantan, uh, which uh, more specifically is uh, its a Phoenician uh, variant, gondon, uh, meaning a gauntlet or glove.
0: Yeah. Uh, I love re- – another thing that's great in this paper is a documentation of many of the euphemisms that people have had for condoms throughout the centuries, Espe- especially in the 18th century. You had uh, these great like, – one thing about euphemisms for condoms is that almost every national culture uh, – puts the name of another national culture <laughs> in the euphemism for the condom. So, like, the the uh, French sometimes called them the English riding coat. And the English sometimes called them, quote, French letters. Letters, so what does that mean? The letters apparently comes from a common word meaning envelope. So, like, huh. you, you know, the letters would be the envelope. So, it's like saying the French envelope.
1: Now, I wonder where this comes from. Is, is it... Is it perhaps tied to the the invention actually uh, you know entering into the country from uh, say france or or from England? you know are they actually attributing the source, or is it like this is the kind of it's useful, but it's the kind of thing that those French would have come up with, <laughs> or correspondingly, this is a very useful
0: invention, but clearly the English did this there I wish there was a name for this. I know there might be a name for it that I don't know of, yeah, this general phenomenon of um Applying the name of another country to an object or practice that doesn't necessarily come from there.
1: Right. Or, you know, another way of looking at it is, is that since for so long contraception has been, you know, unfairly uh, thrust solely upon on females in mm-hmm. these uh, situations, I guess it's possible that it's it could be due to um, men traveling to another country. Uh, say French traveling to England, English traveling to France, uh, in a military scenario or outside of a military scenario, and then it is uh, you know it, they they attribute it to the nation in which uh, the females are introducing them to the technology.
0: Oh, that's interesting. Yeah,
1: but that's that's merely my guesswork.
0: Okay, so by the 19th century, condoms had definitely become very popular in Europe for both contraception and prophylaxis against infections, uh, but they weren't without problems. The most popular condoms were these skin condoms. There were linen condoms, too. There were various materials used, but the most popular were the skin condoms made from animal membranes, and these could actually be expensive, and expense is a problem in contraceptives and in uh, prophylaxis against infection.
1: Yeah, I mean, as, as we'll, we'll discuss later, too— like- like one of the big appeals of the modern condom is that they are generally inexpensive and or free. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, if, you, if it's expensive, uh, that is, that's, that's not good for overall um, public health and also just overall public usage of the technology. Uh, In terms of uh, animal membranes, uh, like we said, membranes and bladders, uh, uh, they were used for a number of different purposes. You know, the creation of wineskins or floats. The Aztecs would use uh, inflated bladders, uh, uh, inflated with air for religious purposes. Mm -hmm. They were like, you know, burned uh, afterwards. And, uh, and you, you see this sort of thing that pop up in other people's writing too. Uh, sometimes the outside of, uh, of actual, um, you know, utilitarian use of the bladders. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, Leonardo da Vinci wrote of inflating intestines as a means of better understanding their structure, mm-hmm. um, you, know, after, you know, after dissecting um, a cadaver. Uh, and he also uh, wrote of the vessels in the penis that were filled with wind to make it erect. Oh. Wind. Which isn't exactly how it works, but uh, I guess it's the same idea. Uh, You know, and uh, by the way, having access to rubber, uh, some Mesoamerican cultures used uh, actual rubber in the creation of enema bags for the administration of smoke or other substances. Uh, In other parts of the world, such as Africa, animal bladders had to be used to create such medicinal devices.
0: Well, it's funny you mentioned rubber there because a revolution in the condom world was definitely ensured uh, by the introduction of rubber as a material that, you could use in manufacturing these things. So, in 1839, when Charles Goodyear invented the process of vulcanization, I, th- I think that was a turning point. And this could even be the subject of a future invention episode. Oh yeah. Um, but in short. Vulcanization is a process used for improving the material properties of rubber by chemically treating it. Specifically, you expose rubber to sulfur and other additives and things called accelerants at high temperatures. And the sulfur and the rubber and the the additives, they all combine and they form uh, these, these chemical crosslinks. And the final product is much more durable and elastic than untreated rubber. And vulcanization opened the door to using rubber as a versatile industrial material and made it useful in a huge range of consumer products. It sort of changed the the world of materials. And in 1855, condoms became one of those products that used rubber. Uh, Ami and Thierry note that at the first World's Fair in Philadelphia in 1876, you could buy quote, rubbers that people were calling them. Ah. Uh, They were quote, handmade and as thick as inner tubes, had a seam and being costly, they were sold by the unit. So not really selling all the advantages on <laughs> those yeah. early ones. But uh, the, the early model rubber condoms were not extremely popular since they were they were expensive. A lot of people didn't like how they felt. Some industrial modifications were made over the years in how they were molded. But uh, another major upgrade was in the 1930s when the process of using latex was introduced. And, and latex rubber is made from a dispersion of rubber particles in a water-based solution. And latex manufacturing made condoms Significantly cheaper, and led to people widely thinking of them as disposable, single-use products rather than as like a reusable appliance.
1: Both of these ultimately um, selling points for the modern condom,
0: right? And uh, of course, today there are also non-latex condoms you can buy. Some are still made from animal membranes, actually, like uh, lamb cecum. Some are also made from materials like polyurethane, and this can be useful for people who are allergic to latex. Some people are, Uh, though I believe the scientific consensus is that animal membrane condoms don't protect against STIs like latex condoms do, and that polyurethane condoms have a lower rate of effectiveness at contraception and are more prone to breaking than latex.
1: All right. Well, on that note, let's take one more break. And when we come back, we're going to discuss uh, more about the the current state of condoms, uh, especially the benefits of condoms, some of the statistics backing up uh, why you should be using condoms.
0: All right. We're back. All right, Robert. Tell me, what have condoms ever done for the world?
1: Oh, well, they've done a great deal for the world and uh, continue to do a great deal for the world. Um, I, I was looking up some uh, some good stats on this. And one of the great uh, uh, sources you can go to is the World Health Organization. Mm-hmm. Um, they point out that condoms are safe and they're highly effective in preventing unwanted pregnancy and sexually transmitted infections, including HIV. Like one of the take-homes from looking at the information is really like – there is no better time than now to make use of condoms. Uh, in terms of just where the invention is, just how well engineered and refined uh, everything is.
0: It's come a long way. It's no longer the thick inner tube rubber with the seam. That... Right.
1: Yeah. And, if, and like you said, if, you, if one is um, allergic to latex, uh, there are these other options uh, as well. Uh, and also, none of the ma- uh, the World Health Organization points out that none of the major manufacturers of male and female latex condoms use M B T or Z M B. This is a chemical material uh, that has recently been identified as a potential carcinogen by the International Agency for Research on Cancer. Uh, Again, you are not going to find that in um, uh, being used by major manufacturers of male and female latex condoms. Mm -hmm. And uh, on on top of that, evidence just shows that male latex condoms have uh, 85% or greater protective effect against HIV and other sexually transmitted infections. That being said, we do have to stress uh, that condoms are are not 100 percent effective. Right. Um, You know, and and that can be said for um, for for most contraceptive methods, uh, you know, aside from abstinence. Right. Uh, And by that, I mean, absolute abstinence, not a striving for abstinence. Right. uh, Because I think there is an important distinction to be made there. (laughs) Uh, Still, if used correctly every time, uh, they are proven means of preventing the spread of HIV in women and in men. Uh, according to Planned Parenthood, uh, which uh, if, if you if you haven't visited the Planned Parenthood website, uh, I recommend it, PlannedParenthood.org. They have a whole host of services, uh, you know, aimed at uh, at educating people about uh, reproductive health and reproduction. Uh, in in fact, uh, just the other day, uh, had a Planned Parenthood representative come out and give uh, like an age tailored talk uh, to uh, my son and some of uh, uh, children from uh, from his school group. Uh, you know, on just like the parts of the body and what mm. the official uh, names for these parts of the bodies are and, you know, what's different from a boy and a girl, et cetera, you know, just like a very base age level, um, uh, you know, uh, talk on uh, on on the, the realities of, uh, of our, our different bodies.
0: That's a great service because I think a lot of times, you know, if people don't know how to talk about uh, reproduction and, you know, reproductive organs and stuff with kids, just like the not having the right words and feeling awkwardness about it can lead to not talking about it at all. Exactly. Which can put like a kind of like shame or stigma around it that there shouldn't be.
1: Right. And that can also be, of course, the same thing with the use of contraceptives and condoms. I know for, for my part, um, like the the main bits of sexual education that I was exposed to in school were like high school level, like highly snickery class environments mm. where, like, a a football coach was begrudgingly demonstrating a condom uh, being applied to a banana, that sort of thing. Yeah, and I don't think anybody learned anything from it. Right, you know, you had to sort of hope that. That each individual in the class had somebody else, some other, um, you know, group or individual in their life uh, taking an interest in explaining to them, you know, what this was, how it worked and how it fit into uh, into uh, healthy sexuality.
0: Yeah. Not teaching kids about reproductive health and reproductive uh, reproduction does not mean they're not going to find out anything. It just means they're going to learn mostly, like, dubious facts from their friends. Right, or television. Yeah. Um, which, you know, depending on... on or, or the
1: internet nowadays, right? But again, Planned Parenthood... Uh, A really good source for information. Uh, It's a nonprofit organization that provides reproductive health care in the United States and globally. Uh, And according to them, condoms are 98% effective at preventing pregnancy if you use them perfectly and use them every time you have sex. Uh, But making room for user error, the rate is actually more like 85% effective. So statistically, they say, quote, 15 out of 100 people who use condoms as their only birth control method will get pregnant each year. Okay. So as such, Planned Parenthood suggests using condoms in conjunction with other forms of birth control in the form of a pill, an IUD, an implant, ring, or a shot. Uh, basically, the combo just increases your odds of preventing pregnancy. And they also mentioned that employing a pullout method, that means uh, pulling uh, uh, the penis out uh, prior to ejaculation with the condom can also help, though on its own, the pullout method is not recommended. Right. Also, We mentioned, you know, uh, internal and external condoms, the male and the female condom, uh, how they, you know, the usefulness of both. However, they should not be used at the same time. Uh, Likewise, one should not use more than one condom at once. Uh, Quote, condoms are designed to be used on their own and doubling up won't necessarily give you extra protection. One condom used correctly is all the protection you need. Uh, But again, that's just the pregnancy angle. Uh, They also help prevent the spread of STDs like HIV, chlamydia, and gonorrhea. They also point out that condoms are a great option for a number of other reasons. They're, you know, they're inexpensive and sometimes free, like we mentioned. And they do not require a prescription. Uh, you can you can buy them or obtain them again sometimes for free from a number of different places. Right. And they have no side effects. You know, aside from you know, some individuals may have a latex allergy or have sensitivity to latex. But again, there are other condoms on the market made of, say, plastic, and uh, this can make uh, essentially makes this a non-issue. Mm-hmm. And really, the only downsides uh, to condoms, uh, the, the, according to Planned Parenthood, are that they do require just a little getting used to. But again, I feel like that can be said for pretty much everything in human sexuality. So it's just one more thing to you know uh, learn the ropes on. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but that is but but also they they stress that as part of a like modern human sexual culture. They're actually part of the excitement of sexual activity and, and not a like hard stop to the action. You know, like the, the again, like we said at the beginning of the episode, like condoms are and should be considered sexy and not something that's like this purely clinical, like deeply serious thing that's going to you know take you out of the moment.
0: Right. I mean, yeah, I guess that's a really interesting issue. It comes up throughout the history of the condom that we were reading. Um, you know, different reports about how the different technologies at different times were said to feel and how people felt about using them. Were they, you know, excited to use them? Were they disinclined? Did they kind of not really like having to use them? Mm-hmm. Uh, these are the kind of things that I feel like, uh, fr- from one type of like medical or clinical approach, you would look at stuff like that and say, like, well, that's just extraneous details. You know, you, what we want to know is like how effective is it when it's used. Mm-hmm. But whether or not people feel like using, Something is an important thing in public health. That's going to tell you probably how often it actually gets used in in people's real lives.
1: Yeah, and you know this is an area probably where you know things like portrayal of condoms in media uh, are ultimately uh, important mm-hmm. uh, because if the if the scene in which a condom is produced is still erotic or titillating, mm-hmm. um, you know that is going to be part of the overall messaging that this. This is this is not, uh, you know, a deterrent to your right. sexual activity. This is a part of the sexual activity.
0: You, you don't want people thinking about it as like something you've got to do, but it's a bummer. Yeah.
1: And uh, it's interesting to, to think about all this, too, in, in comparison to other inventions, because there are probably le- there are levels of this within the invention. Like right. the invention, not only we've seen this in some of the examples we've discussed on the show where it doesn't only have to work. Uh, it has to be something that people uh, are, uh, you know, have ease in using and want to use. Yeah. Uh, you know, see that in the history of, say, uh, you know, the, the motion picture cameras. Yeah. Uh, that we've recently discussed.
0: Yeah, that's right. I mean, it's not enough for a technology or a technological capability to merely exist. It has to be adopted. Uh, I mean, uh, you know, you can you can lead a horse to water, right? But you can't make it wear a giant rubber condom. <laughs> I haven't looked this up, but I wonder what some of the uh, like marketing materials on those things said, you know, was it like uh, uh, vulcanized for extra strength,
1: yeah, or just you know I can imagine them uh, uh, you know like selling this the science of the um of the material, you know mm-hmm. I mean, because ultimately the you know the history of condoms is a history of material science. Uh, because, that, again, the basic concept was was, was clearly evident to us, uh, you know, thousands of years ago. Uh, it's just been figuring out exactly how they work and then figuring out the best, uh, you know, use of materials to make it possible.
0: Yeah, but uh, now, now that we've had this conversation, it really doesn't make sense to me that most of the marketing you see around condoms is not – based on like how effective they are and how, Mm -hmm. you know, it's not like citing statistics about how good they are at stopping the spread of diseases and and preventing pregnancy. It's more about trying to make them sexy. Like the the brands tend to advertise with sexually charged imagery and stuff like that. And I mean, on one hand, you could just say, well, they're just trying to sell their product, which they are. But on the other hand, you could say, well, in in a way that's actually a public good.
1: Yeah, yeah. I I guess ultimately you, you have to have both um, streams of communication going on, mm-hmm. like an individual needs to to know like the, the the hard medical side of the equation, but also be exposed to like the you know the the cultural uh, sexy messaging of it. Mm-hmm. And uh, I mean, it would be interesting to to look at you know how uh, you know what sort of tug and pull goes on with these two uh, streams of communication uh, in the media today. Uh, but I'm I'm guessing that we have perhaps a healthy balance of the two. Mm-hmm. I should hope so, anyway. That being said, uh, clearly, like we, we still have to have to push uh, communication on the use of condoms. And there are p- plenty of uh, initiatives around the world uh, in, in the U.S. as well, uh, you know, to remind everyone to educate people to keep the, you know, the, the fire burning on this topic mm-hmm. uh, and make people aware that, uh, you know, th- this is what they are. This is why you should use them. And uh, and, and this is why they are effective. Uh, but also some of these caveats, like uh, like you know, it's better if you use them in conjunction with these other birth control methods as well. Right now, with a lot of as with a lot of inventions that we've talked about on the show, um, the innovation is not over. Right? <laughs> it, oh, there
0: are tons of modern variants and it attempts to continue. Uh, yeah, j- changing it, innovating. Didn't the was it the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation that was investing in prizes for? Uh, Essentially, I think that they were trying to create effective condoms that uh, that were just like better from a sensation point of view. Uh,
1: Yeah, that was that was one of the facts brought up to us by uh, Scott Benjamin, who helped us on the research. For the show, Uh, he pointed out that this was in March of 2013, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation issued a challenge to the public to develop a condom that was safe and effective while still preserving pleasure for the user. Uh, 22 grants were awarded to organizations claiming to have the next generation of condoms. Um, You know, so talking about using things like graphene and nanofabric and hydrogel. Uh, Etc. Which just which does bring to mind the idea of someone creating like the the stealth bomber of condoms mm-hmm. that is perhaps maybe not that all you know practical uh, at this point, but you know hey could lead to uh, just improved uh, material usage in the future.
0: Yeah. Well, but also making them more and more appealing to the user makes makes it likely that they will be used more often and in a greater percentage of cases.
1: Yeah. Exactly. And, uh, yes, Scott actually uh, included a list of, like, various um, uh, possible future condoms that are in, in development, things like spray-on condoms <laughs> or uh, the galactic cap, which Scott just tells us looks complicated. Um, <laughs> Uh, things like the consent condom, which requires four hands to open, hmm. um, yeah. So there are a lot of different initiatives uh, uh, out there, both technological and again, uh, you know, messaging initiatives to uh, to to let everyone know, uh, you know, about the benefits of condom use. All right, so there you have it. Um, I'm, I'm trying to remember if we've done any any other like health-related invention episodes. Oh,
0: uh, we did the X-ray. Well, the X-ray. Uh, yeah, we did. Uh, that's the main one I'm remembering.
1: Okay. Well, uh, I guess the call out to listeners: uh, toothpaste, toothpaste. Yes. So, yeah, we would like to continue to, you know, to sort of hit these different classifications of inventions. So, if there's another health related uh, invention you would like to hear us cover on the show, or if there's some angle in this episode that you feel like uh, we could uh, explore in another episode, Mm -hmm. let us know. Like, uh, for instance, uh, uh, rubber, as we discussed. Yeah. Uh, Let us know. We'd love to uh, explore those topics. And in the meantime, if you want to check out other episodes of Invention, head on over to inventionpod.com. That's where you'll find them. And if you want to support the show, uh, here's what you can do. First of all, tell some friends about us. Uh, spread the good word. Uh, and in spreading the good word, uh, if you have the ability to leave some stars or a few nice comments uh, at wherever you get this podcast, uh, do that because that really helps us out. It helps, it helps uh, you know, the almighty algorithms that rule our, our lives.
0: Huge thanks, as always, to our audio producer, Tari Harrison, and our guest producer today, Maya Cole. Uh, if you would like to get in touch with us directly to let us know feedback on this, uh, on today's episode, to suggest a topic for the future, to say hello, suggest a guest, any of that, you can email us at contact at Invention is a production of iHeartRadio.